The Veterans Affairs Department says it's processing its backlog of disability claims faster than ever, but it's also getting new disability claims faster than ever. To get ahead, the VA is turning to automation to process some claims in as little as a day or two. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman joins me with more. And how much of a claims backlog to begin with, Jory, do they have right now? It's in a pretty tough situation currently with the backlog. The VA has about 260,000 claims in that backlog right now. And that's, to give you a little bit more context, a pretty significant increase compared to where it was before the pandemic, where it had about 70,000 cases in its backlog. We heard recently from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough. He told reporters that VA plans to address this in a couple of ways, uh, one being just increasing the manpower of people working on these claims. VA plans to hire and train more than 2,000 additional claims processors and support staff before the end of the spring. And they've already met halfway of that goal. They have hired and trained about roughly 1,000 employees there. And in the meantime, VA is also using funds from the American Rescue Plan to pay overtime for the claims processors it already has. All right. So they've got to staff up. And then, as you point out, you can't just walk in there and process claims. There's 10 million rules and you've got to know what they are before you can do it accurately. And this idea of automating some claims. Tell us more about that one. Yeah. So this is really a a narrow approach to addressing the problem. But the things that fall into the purview of this pilot, it does really well and very quickly. Uh, This pilot's currently focused on claims related to service-related hypertension, which is a pretty broad bucket. The VA's uh, Office of Automated Benefit Delivery is running the show here with this pilot. It's conducting all this through its Boise Regional Office. And what this automation really does is it takes a look at the medical evidence that veterans submit to the VA. It does all of this uh, through a streamlined process. It determines whether there's sufficient medical evidence to make a ruling on whether there's a disability claims here or not. And if there is, it helps pre-populate some of the paperwork that the VA has to do in terms of getting that claim out the door. And while this automation pilot can get claims done in about a day or two, uh, that is a best case scenario. There are some cases where a claim is run through the pilot, the automation comes back and says, we don't have all the pieces here that we need, in which case a veteran does need to come into a facility, go through a medical examination and get more of that data. In cases where that happens, the claim gets processed in about 50 days. And is this some kind of an algorithm, an artificial intelligence program that takes a look at what the rules are, what the conditions are reported, and then calculates, yes, this person deserves disability? Yeah, it's an algorithm and it's done through artificial intelligence. And, you know, to put some people's minds at ease here, there is a human in the loop here. You know, it's not done automated from beginning to end. It does just a little bit of that intake process and then it is then dropped into the desk of a a living, breathing VA employee who is then able to do some of the executive work in terms of issuing that claim or not. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. And if this pilot works, and that is to say that it produces the same results that trained humans would be on a consistent basis, only much faster, then what will they do next with it? That's a big if, of course. But, you know, if this pilot is successful, they're going to ramp up to look at more cases beyond hypertension. The VA already gave us a little bit of their shortlist. They're looking at cases of asthma, sleep apnea, and prostate cancer to feed into this automation pilot. That's just the beginning. They're looking at once this gets ramped up and moving a little bit better, that they're looking to add three additional diagnostic codes each quarter of each fiscal year. Yeah, it sounds complicated because you could have 
say, sleep apnea or high blood pressure, but that doesn't necessarily disable you. So I guess there's a lot that goes into saying, yes, this one is, you know, take a pill or put a thing in your nose at night versus you get payments every month for disability. And the electronic health record, which is the repository for much of this information, you presume, for veterans, how is that going? Did uh, Secretary McDonough in his monthly stand-up with the press talk about that? He definitely did, and that was one of the highlights, of course. The VA is, at this point, pushing back the second rollout of that EHR system because of a shortage of employees that are available to train on that new system. This second go live would happen in Columbus, Ohio, at one of its facilities. Uh, The plan was for that to go live on March the 5th. It's now going back to April 30th at this point. The reason as to why is that there were about 200 employees at that Columbus facility out sick because of COVID. And it really muddied the training on these things. They're going through a train the trainer model where they would have these so-called super users that would go through the training and then they would pass that down to the more rank and file folks. And so out of that select population that would lead the charge on the training, a lot of them were out. And so that created a bit of a snowball issue. And speaking of snowball issues, this complicates the timeline for the rest of the EHR rollouts. There is going to be very soon after the original date for Columbus, a third go live in Walla Walla, Washington. Uh, But the VA says it's now reassessing all of its timelines for future rollouts from Columbus on. Plus the rollouts they did have where people were using it, they had lots of problems, correct? Yeah. Last year in the spring, they the VA had launched a strategic review of how things went in its first go live in Seattle. And, you know, it really kind of paused things for the time being to look at what went right, what went wrong, and course corrected from there. So uh, it has been not exactly a smooth rollout from the get-go, and this is just the latest example of that. Well, that's software for you. And, Jory, you're also reporting that some other deadlines are also pushed back by VA, including the Asset and Infrastructure Review. What's that? Yeah, yeah. A lot of deadlines being pushed back. And again, because of COVID here, the Asset and Infrastructure Review, or Air Commission, would be going through a a bit of a BRAC for VA, BRAC standing for Base Realignment and Closure in the DOD community, but this would be an assessment of the VA's footprint. It's impressive footprint across the country, uh, many medical facilities across the country. A look at how well they're utilized and whether consolidation in some case makes sense. And that we're seeing a lot of that go around more broadly with the Public Buildings Reform Board more generally uh, across all of civilian government. And this is a VA specific example of that. We were expected to get a first go round of recommendations from the VA already by the end of January. But again, because of these COVID sick outs, we're now looking at mid-March to see what the VA recommends in terms of closures and consolidations. Right. And this look-see to see where they could consolidate, that was statutorily required, right? It is. It's part of the 2018 Mission Act. And so this is not just a, wouldn't it be fun if we did this? This is statutorily required from Congress. And we'll see if Congress goes along with what they decide to close, because every VA facility is in somebody's district. Yeah, well, that's the fun thing about any kind of BRAC-type decision is that, you know, these are in a lot of places good-paying jobs and and federal jobs, and they're very protective. Various members of Congress are in terms of making sure that their facility doesn't close in their district. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 
I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on What does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the the, probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.